light of infinite. There was a time when I stopped visiting Israel because it was too difficult for me to go after my safta, my grandmother's passing. Her house had always been the first stop. I would run there directly from Ben Gurion Airport. She would likely have some Yemenite food and mind-blowing schnitzel awaiting for my arrival. Back when I was in Yeshiva and I lived in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem, I would take my friends from Yeshiva to my saftas to my grandmother's in Ramat Khan, next to Tel Aviv. We would go for Shabbatot. They all called her Jima. I remember her waking up at 5 a.m. every day and covering her head and saying the morning tefillot, the prayers. She would cook Yemenite food and Moroccan salads, and my friends and I would sing Shabbat songs in Hebrew as she sat on the couch crying from happiness. It's incredible to realize all the time that she and her family were exiled in Yemen and Ethiopia and that they were able to come back to Israel to their homeland and that she could see her grandson living in Yerushalayim, singing the songs that we have sung throughout history every Shabbat since the Jews left Egypt. She had made it. We had made it. The yearning for home and the unification of a people with its ancestral homeland had been realized in her lifetime. Yemenite Jews are unique in that they are the strongest link to the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple. They settled in Yemen while the temple still stood and have maintained their Hebrew pronunciation and Jewish practices in a completely unique way. Whereas most every other Jewish tribe has traveled and assimilated into larger cultures around them, Yemenite Jews have stayed in Yemen up until the last hundred or so years. Even the great Eastern European Gadol of Posek Ador, Rav Moshe Feinstein, said that the Yemenite Jews' pronunciation of Hebrew is closest to that of Moshe, Moses. Now to the parasha, to this Torah portion, which centers around the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple, and its practices, and how these pertain to our lives. The Hebrew word for Kabbalah means parallel or correspondence. So Kabbalah is the mystical teaching of the parallels and correspondences between all of creation and the divine power that creates it. The structures of the four letters of the divine name, the Havaya, express the divine creative force that sustains and is manifested in all levels of reality. We explored this notion the other week with Vayakel, the Torah portion, when we spoke about the parallels between Hashem's arousal from above and arousal from below. This was illustrated two millennia ago in the sacrificial rituals of the Beit HaMikdash, of the Holy Temple. The temple is a microcosm of the creation, and all the rituals performed in it are both symbolic of and actualizations of the divine service each of us is tasked with in this physical world. The Arizal explains that Hashem, God, created five kingdoms in our physical world. The silent, meaning inanimate or mineral, the vegetable, the animal, and the articulate, meaning man, and finally the soul. Each of these is a world unto itself, and each is also a projection of the one that precedes it at a lower spiritual level. This structure of the physical world reflects the structure of the highest spiritual realm, the Atzilut, a realm of pure emanation. In a process of creating all the worlds below Atzilut, a shattering happened. Out of Tohu, chaos, came divine sparks which infused themselves within all aspects of reality in all the lower worlds, including the lowest, which is our physical world. And the Kabbalah explains the other fundamental aspect of creation of the world tikkun, meaning rectification or repair. When we use any element of our physical world for a divine purpose, we elevate the spark within it to its holy source, turning the physical back into the spiritual. Now that we have a bit of the Kabbalistic background, we could jump into the actual words in this week's parasha, in this week's Torah portion, Vayikra. The portion begins, when one amongst you offers a sacrifice to God. Immediately we ask, what sort of sacrifice? Why and how? King David, whose son built the first temple, writes in Tehillim and Psalms, For you, God, do not desire sacrifices, else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Animal sacrifices were a way of ancient Jews to elevate themselves spiritually. 
but the sacrifices would have been meaningless if they weren't done with true intention and a full heart to heal oneself and the harms one has done. King David writes that God will not despise a broken spirit because true remorse makes a person feel broken. And true repentance comes from the desire to be connected to Hashem, to God again, in order to be whole. In order to achieve this level of return to Shuvah, we were commanded to bring a sacrifice in the time of the temple, just as we are now commanded to pray in the absence of the temple. The Hebrew word for sacrifice is korban, which comes from the word karov or likarev, meaning close or to bring closer. It's written in the pasuk michem, which means yourself, implying meaning the one who is offering the korban is sacrificing themselves. I love how Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs puts it. Vayikra is about why love needs law and law needs love. It's about the quotidian acts of devotion that bring two beings closer, even when one of them is vaster than the universe and the other is a mortal of flesh and blood. It's about being human, sinning, falling short, always conscious of our fragile hold on life, yet seeking to come closer to God, and what is sometimes harder, allowing Him to come closer to us. Last week, we discussed Hashem's dwelling in the sanctuary, representing His deeper dwelling amongst each and every one of us. This week, the Torah teaches us how the holy priests are guided in their service and sacrifice in the sanctuary of the past. The korbanot are a beautiful and spiritual ritual. Picture the elements surrounding the sacrifice with the presence of the kohanim, the priests, accompanied by the chanting and songs of the Levi'im, the Levites. The Zohar teaches that the sacrifice of the kohanim was in silence, with the devotion of the heart, signifying hamshachah, drawing forth from above, while the service of the Levi'im was with song and music, signifying halaah, sublimation, elevating from below upwards. As it's written, the Kohanim in their silent service and the desire drew God's presence downward, and the Levites in their song and praises drew man's soul and sacrifice upwards. This is mirrored in how we tend to the sanctuaries within our own soul. The inner acts of sacrifice we practice each day, the desire we have to bring holiness down from above, and the artfulness we use to draw our spirits and surroundings upwards. Vayikra lists a variety of korbanot, sacrifices to be brought by the individual and the community. Below are some general categories. Olah, burnt offering, an animal sacrifice that is completely burnt upon the altar. Mincha, meal offering, an offering of fine flour, oil, and frankincense. Shalamim, peace offering, a fire offering of the fats and kidneys of an animal. The other parts are given to the Kohen, and the remainder is eaten by the owner. Chatat, sin offering, the blood of the animal is poured upon the altar, and the fats are also burnt. The rest is eaten by the Kohanim. Asham, guilt offering. Depending on the individual's means, this offering may be either an animal from the flock, two doves, or fine flour. Miluim, inauguration offering, an offering brought by a Kohen when he joins the service in the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple. Korban Todah, the Thanksgiving offering, an animal sacrifice brought together with four different types of bread. Some parts of the animals are burnt on the altar, Others are given to the Kohen, and the remainder is eaten by the owner. Korban Tamid, the daily sacrifice. Every morning and afternoon, the Kohanim in the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and later in the Beit HaMikdash, brought a fire offering of a yearling lamb together with fine flour and oil. Ketoret, incense offering, an offering of 11 finely ground spices, which were burnt upon the golden altar in the inner sanctuary next to the Holy of Holies. There are two concrete ways in which we can, to some extent, simulate bringing a Korban. In Talmud Menachot, it teaches based on this is the law of the sin offering, that anyone who engages in studying the law of the sin offering is ascribed credit as though he sacrificed a sin offering. Aside from learning the laws, there's the custom to recite Parshat HaKarbanot as part of the daily tefillah, specifically saying, 
If I am obliged to bring a sin offering or any other korban, may it be your will that the recitation of this portion dealing with chatat should be considered as if I was bringing a sin offering. The altar rubber breaks down the pasuk, Adam yikarev mikem korban Hashem. If a man desires to draw close to divinity, the mikem korban Hashem, you must offer of yourself. The word mikem signifies the offering of nefesh elokit, our divine soul. And further in the pasuk, the phrase of the animals signifies the animals in man's heart, the nefesh habemit, the animal soul, from the animal within one's base characteristics. The Lubavitcher Rebbe expounds on this lesson, explaining that the ultimate purpose for man is not avodah, service relating to the divine soul for its own sake, but rather to achieve a birur, a refinement of the animal soul, which we see in this world, mikem of you, followed by korban la'ashem, an offering to God. We see in the sentence, if any man brings an offering of you to draw close to Hashem, to God, one must make a sacrifice of you, of oneself. So you is the essential element of a holy sacrifice. From the heart, from one's godly soul, turning good intention into good action. The intention of the words from the heart means that the person has to bring the sacrifice willingly. It's the same with tefillah, prayer. We should pray out of love, not obligation. The same applies with lending money and other matters between man and his fellow man which are meant to be performed willingly, besimcha, with joy. The bartender comments on Talmud Avot regarding giving tzedakah, charity. If someone were to do it with their face pressed against the ground, under duress, it would be as though the person didn't give the tzedakah at all. The person will still receive a reward for the mitzvah, but in a sense, it's as though the person didn't perform the mitzvah because they did it purely out of obligation instead of willingly and lovingly. The second part of the pasuk, the verse, and sacrifice pertain to an animal and one's animal soul. As it's written, from animals, from cattle, or from flocks shall you bring your offering. This relates to the physical body, physical desires, the natural world. So it's the physical sacrifice actually giving up the animal or its modern equivalent with the purpose to sanctify and redirect the animal in man. The Rebbe explains that when the animal in man is harnessed in the service of God, it has the power to take him closer to God than his godly soul alone could reach. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the reward. Rab Nutan of Breslov explains that a person's sin is due to the lack of dot, of understanding. As it's written, a person sins only because a spirit of foolishness overcame him. To rectify this lack of dot, the person must bring an animal sacrifice, which reflects that animals lack dot, and in this way, the person demonstrates that their readiness to sacrifice their animalistic tendencies. We learn that the animal sacrifices in particular have the power to rectify the lowest world that the korbanot in general correspond to the act of creation, when Hashem separates good from bad, in the same way the korbanot separate good from evil. The same way that any animal that is to be a korban cannot have a blemish, we are tasked with not having a blemish in regards to the animal within ourselves. This is done through self-examination and true remorse, searching one's soul for rifts in the unity of one's being. This includes the three soul garments of thought, speech, and deed. If a kosher animal was torn apart by a predator, it would then be deemed unkosher, treif, which literally means torn. Unlike an animal deemed treif, however, we are able to do full repentance, which in Hebrew is called teshuvah, meaning to return, so we never have to become completely torn away from God. This parasha, this Torah portion, teaches us the process of taking the sitra achra, the fallen sparks, and elevating them to the light, supplementing the darkness. But this can only be done through both our inclinations, for good and for evil. This is the meaning of the famous passage, and you shall love eternally your God with all your heart. Our most profound sacrifice is when we subdue and harness the overwhelming power of the evil inclination and manage to use that energy for good, for Hashem. 
The Zohar states this clearly. When the Sitra Achra are subdued below in the lower worlds, the Holy One, blessed be He, is exalted above and is aggrandized in His glory. In fact, there is no worship of God except when it issues forth from darkness, and no good except when it proceeds from evil. The perfection of all things is attained when the intermingled good and evil become totally good. For there is no good except if it issues out of evil. By that good, His glory rises, and that is the perfect worship. This is seen in the parable of the harlot, in which a king instructs his son to lead an exemplary and moral life and to not fall into temptation. Meanwhile, the king secretly tasks a temptress to seduce his son, testing his son's devotion to him. The woman tried everything to seduce the prince, but he rejected all attempts. At this, his father, the king, rejoiced and bestowed all his honor and the greatest gifts to his son, the prince. The Zohar means to illustrate that all the glory due to his prince was brought about by this temptress. Surely she is to be praised on all accounts, for firstly, she fulfilled the king's command, and secondly, she caused the son to receive all that good and led to that intense love of the king for his son. Conquering the evil within ourselves demonstrates our truest devotion to Hashem, to God. As we read through the parasha, this Torah portion, you will notice that the sacrifices are meant to create an aroma that is pleasing to God. Not only must each person bring the sacrifice to Hashem with a full heart, but each slaughtered animal must be fit to be sacrificed so that it is pleasing to Hashem. As above, so below. When preparing and shechting an animal for us to eat, the animal must be fit, meaning kosher. The Jewish laws and rituals for this are very specific and strict. And even after the animal is slaughtered properly and in a humane way, it's still inspected to see that there are no fatal lesions in the lungs. These are all the aspects of the animal being fit or kosher. In regards to us being fit, we must eat as means to serve Hashem, being mindful of that as its purpose. When our food is elevated into holiness, then the life it came from and our lives are elevated. So our sages teach that man's table is like an altar. This is why on Shabbat we salt the challah, just as the sacrifices were salted. Shabbat is a taste of the world to come. Prayer is a taste and a mirroring of the rituals we once carried out in the temple. But if we have intentions without action or actions without heart, then the aroma we create is not pleasing and the sparks are not fully elevated. My prayer and blessing is that we mirror the upper realms in this physical world, that we liberate and elevate all the fallen sparks, so that the world can reach its maximum spiritual potential that is pleasing on the highest levels to ourselves and to Hashem, so much so that the final redemption reveals itself speedily. Shabbat Shalom. Dive in deeper at lightofinfinite.com.